What we're going to do this morning is we're going to pause from going through the book of James that we've been doing. Uh, we will continue that next week in chapter 1, verse 18, picking it up there, going through the scriptures verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But today what we wanted to do is to recognize the national uh, day of sanctity of life that's been established in our nation. I was going to try to fit it in a little bit and talk about it and then do the message. And as I was preparing, I just thought, I just need to spend the whole uh, message this morning talking about it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I want to begin by just asking God's blessing over our time. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, you are enthroned in heaven and you are awesome and there is no one like you. You are sovereign. You are good. You are great. You are God. You are sustainer and our provider. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the sacrifice of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Father, I pray for our nation. I lift, we lift it up to you. And Father, our hope is not in a new year, but our hope is in the mercies of God that are new every morning. Father, also we lift up those who have COVID in our community, an expanded community. We pray your supernatural touch, your blessing, your healing upon them. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone agreed by saying, Amen. Well, great to see you again. Great to see you. So we're going to talk about life today. We're going to talk about life. So we're going to do a little scriptural sightseeing trip. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at John chapter 8. We're going to look at Psalm 139. And then we're going to finish up with Jeremiah chapter 29. So we're going to be looking at different parts of the scripture. Uh, and I'm going to begin in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, because we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about how to think about life, because every human being is a gift from God, created in the image of God, whether born or unborn, young or old, healthy or sick. Every person is made in the image of God. And so Sanctity of Life Day is a day to kind of awaken our national conscience and restore in everyone's understanding that human life is worthy of respect and love and care and protection. So it's sort of a call to recognize the sanctity of life. So we're going to begin in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of, of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in the front of the crowd, and teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, but like, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And they stooped down again and wrote in the dust. But when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. 
And so in John chapter 8, we have a picture here really of what is the very heart of God. This is an epic story, and I think it's very important for the background of what we're looking at because we're talking about some sensitive things here. But I want us to be very clear in our hearts and minds that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So this is what God is like. So here's the story. You have a violent interruption in the middle of Jesus teaching the scriptures there. There's this disruptive commotion and there's a mob of people. And the mob of people are fighting their way to make it up to the front there of the temple. There's a little space that is open and the mob gets up there and they throw down this woman that is probably partially clothed. We don't even know. And they said, this woman has been caught in the flagrant act of adultery. Like Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? And as you read the story, my question is, well, well, what about the dude? Like, what happened to the guy? Like, it's not a solo act there, and both were guilty. And why wasn't the guy thrown down also in the temple? Why, where, where was he at? So was he even one of the accusers? So there's this battered, probably a battered woman, because you have a mob there, and moms aren't very gentle with people. So they've got stones in their hands, and they want to do away with the woman. So get your mind around this. There was a big noise. The, the, the dudes burst through the crowd, make their way to the front of the tent, screaming, bunch of angry guys, and that's the scene. So Jesus says nothing. Jesus doesn't say anything at all. And so he doesn't get drawn into this academic, technical dispute about the interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Bible scholars and commentators say, everybody loves to comment when there's nothing to say, but they say that when Jesus stooped down in the ground, perhaps he began to scribble some things. Maybe he wrote down the name of a mistress. Maybe he pointed an arrow toward one of the men. Maybe another woman of the night, and he pointed another arrow. But I love the detail of the Bible, which says in verse 9, that from the oldest to the youngest, they left. They dropped their stones, dropped their heads, and they left. Why the oldest first? Well, perhaps because when you've lived a lot of life, you recognize your bucket list of sins, and they had a reality about that, so they began to leave. And so what is happening here is Jesus is leveling the playing field. The accusers actually become aware of their own sins, and they leave. And here's the woman, and the lid has been blown off of her shame. Once it was private shame, and now it is a humiliating, crushing, public shame, and there she is. And so we have this epic moment where Jesus began to deal with all of her accusers. It's just sort of like a savage Jesus moment there. And now the crowd has gone from violent and loud and aggressive and condescending to no crowd. And we need to see this tender moment because now it's just Jesus and the woman there. And only Jesus remains with the woman. And here's the woman in anguish of soul, a woman that is absolutely broken and sorrowful for the darkness that she's walked in. And you can imagine her eyes probably puffy and snot coming down from her nose and puffy eyes and, and tears that have come down her cheeks. And there she is, and it's just her and Jesus. 
I don't want us to miss this because this is one of the things that is really powerful about the mo- this moment. Something that's very powerful in our own lives because Jesus is not detached. Jesus is not judging her. Jesus is not quoting the commandments about, hey, you know what the sixth commandment says? No, that's not what God is like. What we see here that in the midst of our darkness and our brokenness and our sin and our shame, that God is not like that. God is a God who then begins to enter into her story, recognizing her shame there. And he's in the middle of the moment with the woman. And Jesus begins to engage her. He's not detached. He's not looking down at her. He's not reciting, reciting her failures and harshly judging her and condemning her. No. Jesus is it's tender. And you see here the very heart of God on display. And he confronts her by telling her, hey, I want you to leave your old life of sin. I want you to have a new life because your life matters. Don't throw it away. And I think it is essential for us to see that God is a God that would just be one-on-one with the woman and almost like holding her chin there and saying to her, woman, like, 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 look around, look around like, like, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I think that's important for us to get our minds around that because it's essential that we recognize that this is what God is like. Because for many of us, over and over again, in shades of that story are our story where we are rehearsing repeatedly the failures that we have made. Our own self-condemning story is being told over and over again in our imagination and thinking that we're getting robbed of the, of the love of God and the, the, the radical kindness of Jesus Christ because we can get stuck in that place. And so uh, with that understanding and background of what we're going to talk about here this morning, I want us to see this, that Jesus said to us that there is no sin, not one, that is greater than the the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And this is the creative narrative I'm setting up what we're going to talk about this morning. And it says this in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures and those that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God said, and let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In other words, just like us. God created us in his image so that we would reflect who he is and what he is like. That we are created to resemble God, to reflect God. Human beings are the only ones in all of the created order that are part of, are being created in God's image. In other words, human beings are the only ones that are aware that they're even aware. Like the rest of the created order, they're not even aware of things that we would be aware of. And I get it that your cat or your dog is like awesome. 
I'm not even going to try to touch that or take that away from you. I'm not going to try to take it away from you that your cat is like, is it. Or your dog is really smart. And even in our house, the Collins household, uh, when we got married, I told my wife, uh, I don't want to have cats. Like, I don't like cats. I don't want to have any cats. So for 20 years, we didn't have any cats. And then all of a sudden, with no discussion, no debate, a no dialogue, gray cat just appeared. That's the name of our cat called gray cat. And we got another one called white cat. We're not creative enough to come up with names, Simba or Shadow or Kitty. Just gray cat, white cat, I'm serious. But anyway, so we get gray cat and a gray cat just shows up in the house. But here's the deal with animals. They are driven by their instinctive impulses that we also are driven by our instinctive old impulses where in a moment where you just want to go insane, then sanity will usually intervene. Not so with gray cat or white cat. They're just driven by their impulses. They are not aware of what they're not even aware of. And so you know what I'm talking about where perhaps you're on the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you just want to go off on them. I remember <laughs> when I was in Korea, and I was uh, serving in Korea for a summer. And in Korea, they have something that are called kimchi cabs. Kimchi cabs. And kimchi cabs are these little green uh, taxis. And they are the most aggressive uh, people that you could even imagine. They will run you off the road. They will cut in front of you. It's just out of control. I even saw a kimchi cab one time hit going into opposite traffic on a red light, spin around three, uh, three uh, uh, sections of cars against ongoing traffic and make the turn. Unbelievably aggressive. Well, I'd had it with the kimchi cabs. And so on a Sunday, we were going to do church and there was this beast of a military vehicle that they asked me, the missions asked me, hey, Rod, you want to drive that vehicle to church today? I'm like, oh, baby, do I ever want to drive this, this, this beast of a military vehicle? And immediately I thought about the kimchi cabs, and I had had it with the kimchi cabs. And so I got in that beast, and sure enough, right away, it's me against a kimchi cab coming right at me in a small road that one of us was going to have to get off of the road into the, into the kind of the dirt embankment there. And I thought, kimchi cabs going down. This very thing I'm talking about where we have these impulses that are insane. But then uh, sanity will intervene. So anyway, it's coming at the kimchi cab. At the last minute, kimchi cab goes off to the side of the road. I feel like I won that war. But, uh, but you know what I'm talking about is that we usually don't go insane. We don't ram the back of the car that is going too slow. But gray cat or white cat, they would just go crazy because they're just driven by their impulses. But we being created in the image of God are different morally, spiritually than the rest of the created order. And I say that because in culture today, there's parts of culture trying to blend the lines like we're just animalistic, biological. And the viewpoint of humanity basically falls into three categories. One is that we're, there's the theological, which I just explained to us, created in the image of God. But then there's a biological perspective where you are nothing more than biology. That you are just like white cat or gray cat 
or a turtle or a cow. And there's really nothing that separates you from them. That just a kind of a Darwinistic, materialistic view of humanity. And your humanity is nothing more than your cytoplasm and your biological makeup. That you're simply reduced to a biological being and that's all that you are. And if that's how you think, you're not going to see that human life is actually sacred. And then there's a philosophical point of view where you're, you're not just a biological existence, but it's a position that humans are defined by their ability to uh, rationalize and certain traits that you have, like a self-awareness. And the lens that you wear, the lens that you buy into, either theological, biological, or philosophical, will dictate and determine how you value or don't value life. So there was a study done at UC Berkeley, of all places, about a sociological study done. And they asked a number of questions like this. Here's some of the questions. Whether we should intervene in other countries to stop a genocide whether anyone should be able to buy kidneys from poor people, whether terminally ill people should be able to kill themselves to save money, or whether we should take blood from unconsenting prisoners. And the result of the questionnaire is really what you would think, that those are prescribed to a biological perspective of human life or a philosophical perspective of human life were like, yeah, well, of course. I mean, the guy did the drug deal or murdered someone. We'll take his blood whether he wants to consent or not. But those that had a theological view recognized the sanctity of life, recognized everyone created in the image of God, and they didn't see it as the biological and philosophical group did. And so what we're going to do now is going to talk about uh, what it looks like to be a community of life. What does that look like that this church, the churches would be a community, a life-giving community. And so we're going to take a comprehensive view of that. And so a community of life declares that God is the author and the sustainer of life from the womb to the tomb, from the beginning to the end. And so, and it's not enough, right on, it's not enough just to declare, just to believe it or to declare it, but we actually have to live that out. And so I want to unpack for you Psalm 139 and continuing to develop uh, this. Psalm 39, 139 verse 13 says this, but you, that is God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So it's not like there's just a CT scan or ultrasound there and there's the hands of God. No, it's saying that, yes, there's biology at work. Yes, there's DNA and chromosomes. And yes, there's uh, recessive genes and dominant genes. And yes, sperm and egg and all the biology. Yes, that's there. But Scripture puts God right there in your mother's womb. God is there actively, intimately involved in putting you together. So it shows that God is at work right along there with the biology that he's ordained. So the psalmist said, I praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made. I was being made, created, intricately woven in, uh, by you in the depths of the earth. And so... Friends, talk about how God is intimately involved 
with you at your uh, inception there. So God is in this, and because God is in this, all of life then is sacred, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, your parents may have contributed to your DNA, but it is God who actually made you. It is God that made you. Your parents contributed the DNA. And so long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived by Almighty God. And because God was right there, intimately involved in your formation in your mother's womb, we need to recognize that all of life is sacred. And let me just say this. Let me say this. If you're here this morning and you have this feeling about yourself that you despise this or that about yourself, you despise how you're wired up or how God's gifted you or your personality or your mind, you need to recognize that God is a God that doesn't mess up. Like God doesn't make mistakes. Like you're original. Like you're, you're a masterpiece. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so we need to recognize that. So God knows all of your days, it says in Psalms, continuing, says that the days were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So God knew your days before you even lived any of them. It's all part of God's good plan that he's declared for you before you ever lived. And so since we are created in the image of God, since life then is sacred, since life, there is a sanctity of life, I want to begin to unpack that. And first of all, by saying that what I said, that we are a life-giving community, recognizing that God has created life, values life from the womb to the tomb. So what does that look like? Well, beginning with the womb, not just beginning, but ending uh, with the tomb. But this is where we begin, that God values life in the, in the womb that God values that and that we are for the unborn. So what that means is, is that as regarding the unborn, we are in. Like we are compassionately in. We are graciously in. We're ferociously in. We value what God values. God values human life. And so we can't be silent when injustice happens. We have had 60 million Americans who are not here, who are not here. And so someone must be a voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable, which are mostly, more more than any other aspect of culture, the unborn. And so as a community of life, a life-giving community, we're for the unborn. That means that we be a voice for the unborn. That means that we would be for their protections. It means we would do things like help of pregnant teenagers. It means that we would do things like adopt children. And so we do and so we have. Some of you here, you've adopted children or your grandparents have adopted children. And in just the past few years, we've adopted about 20 children uh, in this church. And so I say this because, friends, the reality is this. The reality is this, is that the world is getting progressively just confused about the sanctity of human life. And we're pausing today to gain clarity or to be reminded about the sanctity of human life, which begins with the unborn. And I say this because, for example, in Switzerland, it was discovered that lobsters, crustaceans, feel pain when they're dropped into boiling water. So what does the nation of Switzerland do? But they say, oh my gosh, 
We've got to do something. We've got to stop this. This is absolutely crazy. And so that's what they did. And in 2018, the New York Times recorded that the government of Switzerland ordered that lobsters and all crustaceans by the government no longer be dropped in boiling water. And Robert Elwood, professor emeritus of animal behavior at Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland, said this, and I quote, there should be a more humane approach with lobsters. Now, friends, would you agree with me that something is just a little bit off or broken when a nation is more concerned about ending how it ends the life of a lobster than how it ends the life of a human. Friends, would, would you agree that our world is kind of descending into greater darkness when we're more concerned about lobsters than people? Because in that culture, they, they have, you know, third trimester abortions, but they don't care about them, but they care about the lobsters. And so all that to say is that a life-giving community values all of human life. And sanctity of life is about life. So let me just say this. So we are for the unborn. We're also for the disabled. We're also for the dying because that is part of life to the tomb. And so we're for the disabled. And by that, I mean recognizing that they also created in the image of God. Maybe we're encircling our arms around the mentally challenged and also around those with special needs. I think if people have disabilities, we want to be a community where people would come to and feel that, yes, you have a seat at the table, and yes, you're part of the community, and yes, you're central to what happens, and you can make this a better place, and you can sow in your gifts and your time and your treasures and talents, and you're valued here. And so we reach out and we recognize it created in the image of God is everyone. And perhaps special parents with special needs would, uh, I want to be a place, a home, a church where people with special needs, children can breathe out and recognize that we see also the same beauty and dignity and wonder in your children just like you see that. And so life is a sacred gift. And also that means that as a community of life, we are for the unborn. We are for those that are disabled and we are for those that are dying. In other words, friends, we want to be a community of kindness and compassion and love toward the dying. And no one gets to ascend into eternity make, having the decision made for them prematurely that is not their decision. Scripture said in Psalm 119 that I read to you that he has set our days, our birthday and our death day. He alone sets our days, including our last days, which are even for his glory. So we want to be a community who surrounds those who are dying and to surround them with love and encourage them and speak life into them and sing over them. They would be dignified and valued and loved up till their very final breath. From the womb to the tomb. And lastly, friends, let me say this. That if we're going to be a community of life, then we need to seek the welfare of the greater community. The welfare of this greater community and surrounding communities. What that means is, is that you and I, we need to be for the community for the flourishing 
of the community. And I want to unpack this from Jeremiah in just a moment. But Jeremiah was a prophet there, and, uh, and so God's people had gone into exile. They got into exile into Babylon, which is as bad as you could imagine. Bad to the bone Babylon. Looting, destroying the, the, the city, bad to the bone. And so you have people that are like, forget it. We're like out of here. Like we're going to get out of here. And then you have people that are like, well, we're just going to be like the Babylonians. And Jeremiah comes along and says, says no, like, like neither of those. This is what we need to do. And I think it speaks to us today. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. He says, but seek the welfare, which means the wholeness, the well-being, the peace of the city, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you'll find your welfare. And I say this, but seek the welfare of the city because there's a mass exodus and a mass mentality of, man, I just want to get out of here. I just want to get out of California. I want to, I want to move to Texas or Utah or Colorado or Arizona or wherever. I want to get out of here, you know. And nothing against that if you want to move. But all I want to say is this. I want to remind us that the scripture says, as long as you are in the city, to seek the welfare of the city, the good of the city, to love the city until you're no longer in the city, to invest, to put down roots in the city and to love the place where you are. And if we have it bad, they had it much worse than us. They were captives. They were prisoners to the bad boy Babylonians. They were living under that weight. And to them, God spoke, seek the welfare of the city. And you pray for the benefit of the community where I have placed you. And so uh, this is what they were doing. God, said, God told them to pray for Babylon. So we seek the welfare of the city. And how do we seek the welfare of the city? Well, you can begin right where you're at. You begin like in your neighborhood. Maybe making friends with your neighbors. Maybe helping your neighbors. Maybe inviting your neighbors over. Maybe taking walks around the neighborhood and actually meeting your neighbors. Maybe asking for help offering to help, perhaps investing locally to benefit the welfare of the city. Perhaps that means like investing your dollars in the local coffee shops or the restaurants or the businesses, and thanking them for being open. Perhaps being, I think even involved, uh, I would love to see it happen, us being more involved in politics, being on a school board, being on a, a water board, volunteering for the city there, but getting more involved in the city. People that are retired, they have more time on their hands, they, they, you could do this. So beginning to influence the culture in which we have been placed as long as we can to benefit the welfare of the city. And so this, friends, is what I really feel that uh, is a comprehensive view if we are going to be a church that is a life-giving church, a, a, a community of life, beginning with the unborn, the disabled, 
the dying, the community, and blessing them all, recognizing that all of humanity created in the image of Almighty God and have inherent worth because of that. So I want to take a moment and pray for us, and then the worship team is going to come up, and they're going to sing over us. If you would bow your heads with me. So, Father, help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. Help us to be known and to, to exist and to operate as a community of life, a life-giving church. Father, I pray that you would speak to us again and again of what that would look like for us personally to benefit and to bless the city, to pray for the city. Father, I pray that you would do what only you could do in us and through us. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.